Hello, this is Rachel Blanton with the Life Support Podcast, brought to you by Cornerstone Whole Healthcare Organization, a nonprofit dedicated to health and well-being in rural and underserved communities across the country. Life Support lets us share what's happening in our partnerships with doctors, patients, neighbors, governments, hospitals, schools, foundations, and more. Thank you for listening. And as always, feel free to visit us on the website or on social to learn more about what we do. Today's discussion is with Dr. Jennifer Rolfus, or Jen R, as she's known on our team. Approximately 12% of our staff is named Jen. Maybe next time we'll talk to her about the statistical likelihood of that. However, today we are talking with her about how she came to work for CHU and how that intersects with her lived experience as a family member of someone with opiate use disorder. Thank you to Jen for her openness and sharing, and thank you to you for taking the time to listen. Enjoy. So, Jen, can you just start off with that first question, which is, can you tell me your name, where you're from, and how you ended up doing an interview with me? Sure. So, my name is Jen Rolfes. Um, I am from Las Vegas, Nevada, and um, I am uh, part of the See Who team. And so, I met Rachel um, and, of course, the rest of the team kind of through my, my work with See Who. Great. Thank you. Can you tell me a little bit about how um, opiate use disorder has impacted your family? Yeah, so my mom has MS, multiple sclerosis, and um, one of the very common components of MS is is pain um, that manifests in a variety of ways. And the, the kind of order of the day years ago when my mom was first going through um, diagnosis, which was close to 20 years ago now, um, was to just give people more pain medication until they weren't in pain any longer. And we know a lot more now about the problems um, that occur, but there were also some bad actors, um, not only in Vegas, but you know across the country, of course, that were capitalizing on this new uh, miracle drug that they were calling it right, that would um, help people from a pain perspective who had chronic pain, but was supposedly non-addictive. So, you know, fast forward a few years, and my mom's on many multiples of what would be considered acceptable from a long-term opiate therapy standpoint, and began having significant cognitive issues. Um, One instance, when my husband was diagnosed with cancer, I had to tell her, many different times because she didn't remember. And I think that was when I realized the, the level of cognitive problems that she was having. My brother started taking opiates really around the same time, probably about 20 years ago because of a back injury um, as a long haul truck driver. You know, they obviously are doing a lot of manual work and 20 years and several surgeries later, he's still taking pain medication except for he has to find alternative ways to get opiates because prescribing protocols have changed. I'll let you guys infer what alternative means. So that's how it's impacted the two members of my family who um, clearly have opiate use disorder at this point. Um, Really at the end of the day, through no fault of their own, um, they were really doing what the doctors told them to and, and, and we know now that, unfortunately, there were some bad actors. Thanks for sharing that, Jen. Uh, so when you talk about that, I know um, folks can 
infer probably how that's impacted you, but can you tell me um, really what that's meant for you and your life um, and even the work that you do um, based on those experiences with your family members? Yeah. Um, so it really affects my life every day. Um, there's kind of the obvious. Um, I worry about my ma not waking up because she's on opiates, benzodiazepines, and um, hypnotics, you know, like ambient, the ambience of the world. There's kind of this constant concern that, you know, even though she's been on these high level of medications for years, that it's possible that one day, you know, she's going to stop breathing. And it, it kind of leads to a feeling of helplessness that you can't really change the outcome. There's been, you know, 20 years of history leading up to this. I, I can't wave a magic wand and fix it. So there's a lot of guilt involved in that, um, whether or not it's reasonable to feel guilty, there still is guilt. And, you know, to be quite honest, a lot of sadness. Um, I also no longer have a relationship with my brother because of um, a lot of things related to his mental health issues that were never addressed kind of during this journey and um, his, his way of kind of lashing out at people. So I think that that's hard too. Absolutely. Um, I guess when you look back, uh, like you said, you've got a long time to kind of think about um, what's happened with um, these two people that um, either are or at least once were very close to you. Um, when you think about what happened um, in, in terms of the healthcare system, what, what went right and what went wrong um, when you reflect on that? With my ma, her original neurologist a long time ago, um, he was he was amazing. And I think he was legitimately trying to do his best and recognize that my mom did have a pretty complicated case. By the time she was diagnosed, she had more than a dozen lesions in her brain already. And she was experiencing a lot of uh, different, you know, side effects or, you know, symptoms of MS, I guess is the better word. And so he really wanted her to go to a place like Mayo where there was a whole specialized team that could be there to support her and, and really understand what was going on with her overall quality of life functioning and everything else. Um, For whatever reason, that wasn't something that my mom was able, you know, and or comfortable to do. I honestly can't remember, but, you know, I think that, having that holistic viewpoint would have been very helpful in the beginning because instead of doing that, you know, she ended up at a pain specialist and, you know, the rest is kind of history from what I've been explaining with my brother. I I'm struggling to find a place where the system went right, but you know, that was partly um, self-directed because he has essentially refused medical care at many different time points with the exception of a couple of surgeries he had to have on his back, but they didn't really do him any justice by saying, you know, just, you know, put that problem patient somewhere else and just, you know, kind of pushing around from one doctor to another who really didn't look at his whole healthcare picture and therefore 
just continued to give him medication just to get him out of the office. That was the easy solution to a very complex problem. And I feel like no one even tried. And I say that not having been in the doctor's office with him, of course, right? But you can kind of see where the system is broken when you have these long-term problems and you just wish that there was one person who who triggered a different event that would have led to a different outcome. And to answer your previous question about um, how my experience and my family's experiences have influenced my my work today, I would say that 100% of what I do every day is because I've seen what opiate use disorder and mental health uh, problems that are that go unaddressed can do to an entire family, not just to the people who are directly impacted, right? The ones who are going through the struggles with the with opiate use disorder and mental health, but their entire orbit, right? Everybody around them, their their kids, their siblings, their uh, parents, their spouses, just it, it it's really a cascading effect that impacts everybody. And so that's why I do the work that I do. Well, I'm excited to talk about that just um, a little bit more in a few minutes here, but kind of circling back to your mom and your brother's encounters with the healthcare system. uh, It sounds like there's a lot of things you could say to the system, but then there's also things you could say to the individual providers. Um, If you could go back um, and talk to them, um, to those providers, um, what what would you say as a family member of uh, someone with opiate use disorder? Well, that's really hard to answer. Um, and I say that for a couple of reasons. One is, um, as I had mentioned, I do believe that most of the doctors thought they were doing the right thing. Um, it probably seems pretty obvious now, but when a drug company is so heavily marketing a miracle pill, maybe we should all be more cautious of putting too much stock in what they're saying. Um I think that if the doctors back then were more focused on, on functionality, meaning um, them patients being able to live their daily lives from support with physical therapy, occupational therapy, uh, behavioral and mental health support. um, I really feel like it would be a, a different outcome at the very least for my mom. My brother was always pretty adverse to seeing doctors, but For my mom, I really think that if she had a physical therapist to help her with, you know, um, some of the things that were causing all the pain, um, an occupational therapist maybe to help her relearn how to do some things so that she could kind of live her daily life a little bit better. And then behavioral health support, you know, 20 years ago, um, going to see a therapist was very stigmatized and and not very available, I guess I should say. And it's not anything that anybody even ever mentioned was something that might be helpful. So I think just having this more holistic view of patients than, you know what, they're in pain, I'm going to give them pain medication. Um, There's so many other things that go into chronic pain. And I think that that's where a lot of the opportunity was lost. I hope that answered your question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm hearing a lot of um, 
passion and um, which I'm not surprised knowing you personally um, that um, there's compassion with this incredibly challenging situation where it's um, yes, you can blame the individuals, but at the same time, um, you know, thinking about again, maybe we all should be skeptical of that miracle pill idea. Um, so I, I appreciate that perspective and um, also on a personal note, well, I'm sure we'll edit this out, just continue to admire your kind of grace in the face of um, where I think a lot of people would get really, really angry. So, um, but also know that it's okay to get angry and that um, I'm sure that sometimes that does come out too. I have those moments. <laughs> uh, I'm sure, but uh, the, the way that you um, kind of reflect on that, I just want to say I admire that. Um, when you think about, um, so maybe not your mom or your brother, but if you were to meet someone at random, um, you know, just at the table next to you in a restaurant, once that's actually a thing again, but, um, if you were to just be talking to a stranger, um, who, uh, had opiate use disorder, um, what would you say to them? I would say that, there's help and there's hope. There's a lot of people out there who, who want to help. There's a lot of resources. It's, it's, I think the most critical aspect is having an advocate in your life, somebody who can help you navigate the healthcare system. Um, somebody who can take what, you know, doctors or different professionals are saying and, and make it a little less fuzzy and a little less abstract. And I say that because often when, when patients are going to doctors, um, especially those with these really complex cases and opiate use disorder or any substance use disorder, they're, they're definitely feeling stigmatized. They're feeling um, scared about what their doctor might do or what, um, for that matter, their doctor might not do. Um, it's not easy. It's not easy to admit that you're struggling with opiate use disorder. It's not easy to put yourself out there and be vulnerable to get help, but there is help and there is hope, I guess is what I would say. And, and being who I am, I'd probably give them my card and tell them to call me <laughs> so I could help them. Um, but yeah. I think just the simplistic message is there is help and there is hope. Absolutely. Well, I, I think that, you know, you've, you've seen, uh, you've seen where there can, can be hope and, um, you know, positive outcomes, um, relatively positive outcomes. And then where, you know, that, that doesn't pan out, but um, I think that that, kind of optimism and support is probably what anybody needs going through a hard situation, but particularly with opiate use disorder. Um, I think, you know, just based on what, what we know, um, one of the most challenging situations you can be in. And I think not only as a patient, but also probably as a loved one or a caregiver for someone that does have opiate use disorder. So if you met that person with opiate use disorder and then got the chance to talk to that person's partner or child or parent um, separately, what, what would you say to them? That I think it's important to be supportive and to give them a place that they feel that they can be vulnerable and that they can be honest, but you also have to set boundaries. Um, you could 
pretty quickly end up in a, in a bad place mentally or financially because of your desire to help. And at the end of the day, that is really going to make things worse for a whole nother um, family potentially. So if you have a family member who has opiate use disorder and you're, you know, trying everything and, and losing sleep at night, literally, and, you know, possibly not functioning properly at work or at home, and you really end up in a bad mental place, then now that is negatively impacting the whole entire family unit, another family unit. So I think that it's important to know what you can do to help and to set boundaries. That was one of my failings in the beginning was I was willing to do anything and it, it ended up putting me in a bad place, um, you know, mentally. So um, not to get too personal, but that, that was my lesson learned from everything I've been through. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and I imagine there is a lot of people out there that um, don't necessarily have, have that viewpoint, um, particularly with the stigma around opiate use disorder, um, to have those open and honest conversations with somebody else that's been there as they try to navigate a really challenging situation. Um, Beyond doing some of that self-care and really um, developing that compassion and kind of opening, open listening um, to support your uh, brother and your mom. Um, I know you've talked about how the work that you do now is very much reflective and informed um, by uh, your experience as being a caregiver, um, a family member of someone with opiate use disorder. Can you talk a little bit about how that manifests in your professional life? Yeah, so I think that what is most striking to me and what makes me so hopeful is that there has been so much more awareness um, from, from all sides, really, right? We recognize that the pharmaceutical companies were doing things that they shouldn't, that doctors were being trained in ways that weren't necessarily appropriate, which is why I often don't blame the doctors. I don't think they were acting nefariously for the most part. Um, I think that uh, the increase in mental and behavioral health has been amazing over the last few years. I think the education that primary care physicians have received and us understanding what dangerous levels of opiates and polypharmacy like opiates with, with benzodiazepines um, has been helpful. And I think that the general outreach to patients and understanding that there are many, many people going through this, that they're absolutely not alone and um, tackling it from all sides is really what is going to make the difference. It's not a one dimensional problem and it definitely is not a one-dimensional solution and so I think that the work that I try to do and that we all try to do at CIHU is to bring all players together to reduce stigma from um, a policing standpoint from a primary care standpoint even the person who is at the front desk checking someone in right we want to make sure that everybody has an understanding and has received um, training for, you know, to be more empathetic and to understand that this isn't just a moral failing. 
you know, this is something that unfortunately um, has taken many lives and has been, you know, developed through many actions of many people over many years and unwinding that is going to take some time, but it takes all of us. And I think that that's what informs the work that we do is that we all have to be together in this fight. I love it. And I'm right there with you uh, coming from a different perspective, but I, I think it makes the work incredibly meaningful. Um, one of the things that we really focus on is doing this work in rural communities. And, um, you know, when I talked to Dr. Reagan, that was a big kind of tilt on his perspective was um, access to care, particularly in rural communities. And um, <clears throat> that we do see um, uh, rural and frontier counties um, within many, many states just getting hit so hard um, by um, truly this um, <clears throat> epidemic. Um, so what what perspective do you have on um, how doing this work in rural communities is unique? Um, how is it the same? Um, what would you call out there? So yeah, um, rural communities are unique in a lot of ways. And not being from one, I've learned a lot of the lessons from, you know, really being on the ground and going to visit these rural clinics and, and talking to doctors and, you know, administrative staff and behavioral health care providers and, and, and kind of getting their perspective on what is different about living in a rural community. And I would say that the themes that, that continue to come up is this idea that, um, you know, if you, if you have a, a problem in a rural community, because there isn't always a lot of access to services for a variety of reasons, right? Um, you know, it's it's kind of understood that you're you're going to solve the problem yourself. So it's kind of like the old adage, right? Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Um, just kind of figure it out. And with the complexity of opiate use disorder and the the need for kind of this wraparound care that we talked about earlier. I don't think that that's always something that's possible. I mean, certainly there probably are people that have pulled themselves out of the depths of opiate use disorder without a lot of help, but I would, I would venture to guess that those are pretty rare. Um, there's also, uh, I think, more of a stigma around how somebody ended up with opiate use disorder. Um, it can be seen more as like a moral failing or, you know what, I don't really want to have to deal with that person they got themselves into that mess. Um, there's also, you know, some misunderstandings among law enforcement about, you know, why, why people can't seem to break the cycle. Right. And why should we carry naloxone to save them in a potential overdose situation? And so I think that kind of going back to the conversation we were having earlier having discussions with all of these different players in the system and, you know, trying to get them to see that it's not really a moral failing and that we all have to band together to fix this problem because somehow we all together created this problem, I think is, is the most important, right. To, to bring resources and, services and um, 
specialists to offer, you know, a variety of training and, um, and really just to talk to people. Um, the best way I think to, to get people to see others as human beings is to just get around a table and have some food and, and talk. And I think that sometimes the humanity component of all of this is lost. Love that. Um, it's uh, like Donnie's perspective, uh, some bourbon and barbecue, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Life Support. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure to follow us here so you don't miss out on any future episodes. Stay healthy.